This is Downtown the Podcast, episode number 41. Brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Rich Kimball, Carrie Haskell with you. From our Zone Radio studios in Bangor, Maine, our program downtown originates from Bangor every weekday afternoon from 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. And every week our podcast catches up us, catches us up with some terrific conversations we've had of late. Today on the program, legendary singer-songwriter Roseanne Cash visits with us, and we talk movies with Dan Epstein, a talented writer who did a terrific piece for Rolling Stone looking back on the making of North Dallas 40. But first on the show, a woman who's been making great music for, well, more than three decades now. She's also an accomplished author, four-time Grammy Award winner, has nearly a dozen number one hits on the country charts, and a brand new album that's getting rave reviews, and justifiably so, entitled She Remembers Everything. We had a chance to catch up recently with the great Roseanne Cash. The new album is, is just so incredible. When it first came out, I posted the title tune on social media, and I immediately had a couple of woman friends reach out to me. One of them said, this is amazing therapy, and the other ones quoted the opening line of the song, who knows who she used to be before it all went dark and said, how does Roseanne Cash know me and my life? Uh, so many, so many women, so many people can relate to that, as you say, unnamed trauma. Yeah, I, I have had a lot of women reach out to me too. Um, that's not to say I haven't had men say that, that they relate and that they, you know, love the record, but in particular, women who are of a certain age, who are, you know, past their 30s, they um, understand that struggle with um, wondering about who you were before trauma and spending your life finding out who that person is. And also just this sense of m- mortality that hangs ever closer and loss and rage and love, long-term relationships. You know, these are not songs about hookups and breakups, <laughs> not songs about kids. No, and you've described, and I think it's a perfect description, uh, you've described She Remembers Everything as both a come-on and a threat. Yeah. Well, you know, it's very seductive to tell someone you love, you know, I'll remember everything about you. I'll remember everything that happened to us. But there's also a warning in that. <laughs> <laughs> Did you feel a sense of urgency in writing these songs, given what's been going on in this nation in the last couple of years? Yes, I do. But um, that doesn't mean that this is um, all about what's going on in society. I mean, some of these songs I wrote 10 years ago. Two of them I wrote 10 years ago. The rest are are newer. Um, And she remembers everything. The title song I wrote before the Me Too movement, before um, any of this happened, you know, before this kind of hidden contempt rose to the surface. And I'm the mother of four daughters and a son, and these questions have been weighing on my heart, these issues. And so I thought when all of this started happening, I thought, well, that song was a little bit prescient. It, it uh, knew what was coming. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Undiscovered Country, uh, along with giving a nod to 
the Bard and to your father, uh, also about women finding their voice. How, as an observer, how did we take this step back in America? It seemed like uh, you and I, around the same age, growing up through the civil rights years, it felt like yeah. we had moved on, and now here we are back where we started in many ways. How did this happen? I don't know. I mean, I feel the same way. I was wondering the very same thing. Like when during the civil rights era, the first wave of the women's movement, you know, there was this kind of awakening in the country, and it. I thought everything would end up on a level playing field, that women would get equal pay, that there would be equal respect, that we would have equal chance to be heads of Fortune 500 com- com- uh, companies and and equally represented in government, and that we it would be equal in all ways, and the same with minorities. And... I realized, I started thinking, well, progress, If you, you assume it goes in one direction, mm. but it requires devotion to go in one direction. You can't take it for granted. I mean, that's the thing I've realized. Yeah, we've learned that the hard way. Uh, I was yeah. absolutely blown away uh, by the song Eight Gods of Harlem on so many levels. First, uh, the wonderful collaboration with Chris Christofferson, Elvis mm-hmm. Costello, guys you've known for a long, long time. Yeah. They've been, for, I mean, uh, Chris and I have been friends since I was a teenager, and Elvis and I for 20-plus years, 25 years. And I kept thinking about writing a song with them, and, you know, on paper that just doesn't make sense. <laughs> but I asked them, and they said yes, and I had written the first verse to Eight Gods of Harlem, and I, I said, do you want to finish this, and do you want to write in character? You know, I wrote the mother's verse, Chris wrote the father's verse, Elvis wrote the brother's verse, and um, we actually finished writing it and recorded it in one day. It was really remarkable. Well, I'm uh, full-time. I'm a high school teacher. and uh, Oh, good for you. You're one of my heroes. Well, when, when I got to the line, we prayed to the God of collateral children. I, I flash back to a couple of years ago when we had a, a lockdown drill that we weren't sure was a drill. And, oh, and, and I remember thinking, you know, this is not what I signed up for when I decided mm. to become a teacher. But uh, I thank you on behalf of of all the teachers and all the students for the, the 20 years or more that you've put into trying to put a stop to gun violence in this country. Oh, thank you. I, you know, no, you didn't sign up for it. Actually, none of us signed up for this where you had to fear sending your children to school. And I mean, I've always seen um, the fight against gun violence and the um, longing and pressing for common sense gun control as an extension of parenting. You know, we have laws that you have to lock an aspirin bottle. We have laws about the cords on curtains for babies, about how wide the slats can be on cribs. The laws around guns are either non-existent or so riddled with loopholes, no pun intended, that, um, that they're ineffective, basically. And it's not right. It's not fair to the next generation. Well, very personal for you, because if I remember right, one of your daughters was held up at gunpoint. she was. But I was active in this cause before that. I mean, it was so ironic, but it just made me dig my heels in. And, you know, she suffered trauma for years after that. Thank God she's recovered, but nobody should have to go through that. 
We're talking with Roseanne Cash on Downtown. The new album is She Remembers Everything. Roseanne will be at the State Theater in Portland on April 9th. I love the song Crossing to Jerusalem and uh, the way it uh, falls on the album right up against Not Many Miles to Go. It made me think back to one of my favorite songs of yours from The Wheel, uh, The Truth About You, which you and John mm. wrote pretty early in your relationship. And you know, it starts with uh, all our secrets fall like raindrops between us. And, and now in these new songs... Just One Promise Left to Keep. It really chronicles uh, an amazing relationship, the 25 years or so that you've been together, and, and the future with, as you point out, uh, more more miles behind than ahead. Oh, you're, you're actually moving me the way you talk about it. You know, I mean, I hadn't made that connection to the truth about you that we wrote early on, and you're absolutely right. It's like you get rid of the secrets first and the the uh, power struggles, and then 25 years in, you go, oh, wh- wow, there, one of us is inevitably is going to leave the other, mm-hmm. and it makes it so much more precious. And I started thinking about the artifacts in our lives that we'll leave behind, you know, that his guitar will uh, survive us, that we can see the Empire State Building outside our window and how that resonates for us. And it'll all be there when we're gone. And hopefully it will carry some memories, you know, mm. that people will remember us. Things get a little dark on the album with My Least yeah. Favorite Life. <laughs> and uh, yeah. I, I, I think yeah. back to, uh, I loved your book, Composed, and I think back to something uh, you wrote about there. Was it John Stewart who asked you years ago in writing, where's the madness, Rose? Yeah, that was his constant refrain. But where's the madness, Rose? Like, if I would try to write something too perfect, where's the madness? That was a great lesson in letting go and in, uh, you know, allowing chaos and walking into nightmares, knowing you could come back. And my least favorite life on the album is is somewhat a nightmare, but I think everyone has felt that, like, that the night that you twist on the rack is the time that you feel most at home. We've all wallowed in despair. <laughs> But, you know, if if we're lucky, we come back. We had Brian Cranston on the show a while back, and, and he was talking about how having a strong marriage and a secure family life gave him that freedom to be able to, to explore the darkness a little bit. Do you feel like you have that same safety net that allows you to go to those dark places? Absolutely. I think he's absolutely right that, you know, your family and friends and your are foundational and... Um, a safety net. Not that you should use them in that way, but if you've created that kind of strength for yourself, it doesn't build a bridge to come back and give you freedom to explore really dark places. And also, uh, for me, I, I didn't realize this until after the fact, but my last child went to college. Um, he's in his second year now. And I found myself more willing to go into chaotic dark places in my writing after he was in college like well i don't have to go to a parent teacher meeting today or you know um show up in a way that doesn't compromise your child's safety or sanity so it was interesting i i actually talked to elvis about that I listened to the album the way we always used to listen to albums, starting at track one and going straight through, and I, and I love the arrangement of the songs. How important was that sequencing to you? Oh, God bless you for that. 
I once on Twitter, not on this record, but on the last one, I was agonizing over sequencing. And I, I wrote on Twitter, why am I worried about this? No one cares anymore. You, you know, they, you listen at random play and single downloads. And I immediately got dozens of responses that said, I care, I care, take your time. I want to know how you see what kind of set it is. I want to know what sequence you think. So it's always been really important for me. That doesn't mean I'm very good at it. I got a lot of input from uh, Tucker, particularly Tucker Martin, who produced half the album. He, and he kind of owned it. He said, I'm actually pretty good about this. And he offered a, the sequence that we ended up keeping. Well, I, I think it's fantastic. And we're talking with Roseanne Cash on downtown. Are you more comfortable with ambiguity in your writing now? I am very much so. I don't think there's a need to spell it out. It's like the poet Rilke said, you have to love the questions. And I do. I love the questions. What did you learn about yourself while you were writing these songs? Mm-hmm. What did I learn about myself? I don't know. that. Well, like you just said, I'm more comfortable with ambiguity than I've ever been. That the urgency you feel when you look at your own mortality, not that far in the distance, is can give rise to beauty, to art, music, um, that I am not afraid of not people-pleasing. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the cover art is so very striking uh, by Portia Munson. How did her art speak to you? Well, I just love Portia, and I knew her work before I knew her, and I thought it had this same kind of gothic femininity to it that I was writing. It just seemed to mirror it in this odd way to me. I don't know if everyone would see that, but it did to me, and particularly the image that she deconstructed for the cover of The Tree and the Knife and the Elbow. And um, so I just called her out of the blue, and I said, have you ever done an album cover, and would you be interested in it? And she said, yeah, I'll try that. I've never done it, but I'll try it. And I just love it. I love her. A couple of the songs on here were part of a collaboration you did uh, with uh, T-Bone Burnett for True Detective. Mm-hmm. Do you still think of yourself as a writer first and a singer second? Yes, absolutely. Um and when my voice falls apart, I can still write. <laughs> I mean, he called me to write lyrics for him for two of the songs for True Detective, and, and he and Lyra Lynn wrote the music. And I, I like that. I like collaborating, being just the lyricist. That's really satisfying for me. And uh, you're also part of a, what looks like a great collaboration uh, with Dan Rizzi on Bird on a Blade. Oh, that was really fun. So Dan, you know, I have a lot of friends who are visual artists, And um, he's a beautiful painter. And we've been friends a long time. And for a decade, we've been saying, you know, we should really do a book together, my lyrics and Dan's art. And I said, finally said, look, I've got this album coming out in November. Let's just do it now. And that was about nine months before. And we put it together fairly quickly. I'm very proud of that book. I, I love it. I think it's beautiful. What's happening with the adaptation you've been working on of the film Norma Ray? Um, we're five years in, 
and I don't feel too bad about it because I hear that the average to write a Broadway musical is seven years. <laughs> um, and we're nearly there. We're nearly there. You know, it's it's a matter of not just rewriting, but getting financing, finding the right theater, and a lot of moving parts. You've got and big... also, there's this saying, somebody told me, Adam Gopnik told me this. He said, you know, if, if you make an album and you're 80% there, you're great. If you write a book, you're 80% there, you're great. If you write a Broadway musical and you're not 98% there, it's done. You're over. <laughs> <laughs> a big tour kicks off for you very soon. You'll be stopping here in Maine, April 19th, or April 9th, that is, at the State Theater in Portland, uh, somebody, a wise person, once wrote many years ago, a lonely road is a bodyguard. Mm-hmm, I wrote that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wrote that when I was 12 years old. It's, my mother saved my English papers from middle school, and she sent them to me at some point before she died, and I found that line. It was a study a, a thing we did on metaphors in English class, and I kept that line, and I popped it right into a song I was writing. You're also going to be part of a big event on March 27th at the Ryman uh, with friend of our show, Ken Burns. I can't wait to see his new series on country music, and, and this is sort of the kickoff for that. You are going to love it. I can say that with utter assurance. This, this series, I wept all the way through it because no one has ever told the entire story of every part of country music until now, from Appalachia to Texas Swing to the Bakersfield Sound, all of it pulled together. It's really remarkable. So, yeah, there's a multi-artist show at the Ryman Auditorium in Nashville to, uh, to kick that off in the spring. Well, you've given us some great advice. Uh, I think it's my favorite lyric uh, from the album from... From everyone but me, we run a similar chorus on a track laid with broken glass. So tie your shoes real tight. It goes by real fast. It does indeed, doesn't it? Well, I uh, I can't wait to see the show in Portland. I, I hope to be one of that 6% in the audience. <laughs> I can tell already that you are. <laughs> <laughs> Roseanne, thank you so much. It's, it's been a real treat to talk with you. I appreciate it. Rich, I can't tell you how um, gratifying it is to speak to someone who's so well-informed. Thank you. Roseanne Cash talking about her album. She remembers everything. Check out her book, Composed, as well. Uh, she's out on tour right now and uh, traveling all over the country in support of that album. When we come back on Downtown, the podcast, we'll talk movies and go back 40 years to the making of North Dallas 40. Dan Epstein up next on Downtown the Podcast. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Back a few months ago, I was headlining at a great big nightclub. And he put me up a couple of days early. I came in a couple of days early, and they put me up at what they call the Star Suite. Now, here I am, headliner in one of the biggest nightclubs in the country, and I wake up at 8 o'clock in the morning in this Star Suite. 
all by myself. Yeah, that's what I said, all. But I did what I've always done, man, to cheer myself up. I picked up my guitar, I sat down, I wrote me a little song. Now this is how it feels to be alone at the top of the hill and trying to figure out why. Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. <laughs> a little taste of Mac Davis, the singer, songwriter there, but there was a time when Mac Davis also had a pretty good acting career going. 40 years ago, he co-starred with Nick Nolte and uh, an all-star cast in the film North Dallas 40. Dan Epstein of Rolling Stone took a look back at the making of that movie for Rolling Stone and then shared some of his insight with us as well. Here's Dan Epstein on Downtown, the podcast. Dan, how are you, my friend? I'm great, Rich. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Uh, How is it since your relocation to the South? Well, I'm sitting here in in Greensboro, North Carolina, and it is uh, 72 degrees at dusk, so I am not complaining. Uh, I did not. I miss many things about Chicago, but the weather is not one of them. That sounds pretty good to me. Absolutely. Well, uh, a wonderful story that you have in the latest uh, Rolling Stone online about North Dallas 40, which, frankly, I had forgotten how good it was. And and I look back on it now, and, and as you say, it's, it's almost, well, I know you love the movie. Is it on a par with Bad News Bears when it comes to capturing the sport? I think it is. I think it's right up with uh, Bad News Bears and Slapshot. Uh, not not only as great uh, great sports films of the seventies, but uh, but it really does justice to uh, the sport of football, especially in that era. Uh, in the same way that Slapshot does to professional hockey, and Bad News Bears obviously not professional baseball, but I think it it uh, tells us more about baseball than than any film about the major leagues uh, has ever done. And it really captures, as you point out, uh, a moment in time before NFL free agency. Yeah, I mean, it, it's so interesting to, just to, to see how the players live their lives off the field. Um, uh, you know, to, uh, they're definitely not living in mansions, definitely not uh, driving really nice cars or, or uh, shrouding themselves in jewelry. Because the, you know, uh, same with baseball before free agency kicked in. Uh, a lot of guys had to work in the off season to make ends meet. Uh, the salaries were, you know, kind of uh, artificially depressed by the fact that players had no say in uh, who they were playing for or, you know, if, if uh, they could sell their services to another team. And, uh, and you know, on top of that, they had really no recourse if, if their team wanted to bench them, if the team wanted to trade them to the Canadian Football League, as uh, Nick Nolte's character is constantly threatened with, uh, North Dallas 40. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely, uh, it, it was a different era in the game, for sure. And the movie, based on a tremendous book uh, by Peter Gant, as you point out, it was, was in many ways had the same effect on the NFL as Ball 4 did on Major League Baseball. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's, you know, the, the, the NFL always tried to, Kind of portray portray itself as this noble noble league of gladiators, and uh, and Gent's book really kind of ripped the uh, ripped the curtain off that, and and showed how players were exploited by their teams, how uh, many of them, uh, you know, had to play with injuries that uh, you know would. You know, potentially ruin their careers just because they didn't want to uh, didn't want to get cut, didn't want to get benched, 
uh, or were you know pressured into taking painkillers to uh, in order to perform, and also uh, you know talked a lot about the players' lives off the field and uh, the the you know often uh, less than seemly situations that they would uh, wind up in, and of course this 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 was nothing that the NFL wanted out there. A tremendous cast as well. I mean, Nick Nolte is great in this. John Matuzak, who knew? And then Mac Davis says uh, the quarterback, Seth Maxwell, with a, a pretty strong homage to Dandy Don Meredith. Yeah, I've, I've also heard people say that they thought that, that his role was based uh, based partly on Kenny Stabler, um, <laughs> which I get, especially because Fred Bolitnikoff, who was Stabler's favorite receiver, was was on the set as, uh, as Nolte's kind of, uh, you know, uh, wide receiver coach, you know, showing him how to, how to catch and move and, and all of that. Um, but yeah, it, but both Nolte and Davis, not only are their performances great individually, but the chemistry between them is so fantastic. It's, it's exactly like you would imagine a quarterback and his favorite receiver would interact both on and off the field. You know, it's really a shame that they didn't make another movie together. It didn't, you know, didn't didn't have a buddy cop show or something like that because that that they they really could have uh, uh, they, they could have run with that. I'm surprised too, looking back on it, that he's so good, so natural in it. And Mac Davis did, didn't do all that much more acting through the years. Yeah, I mean, he he kind of, you know, I mean, he had a recording career simultaneously, so I think he would just kind of. My impression was that that he was just kind of a guy who went in, you know, wherever the fish were biting. And uh, but yeah, I, th- I think I think this definitely has to rank with uh, among his best, if not absolute best, uh, film role. We're talking with Dan Epstein uh, in Rolling Stone, talking about North Dallas Forty, and you mentioned the scene that it really is is interesting because of their different take. It might have been portrayed a lot of different ways in other sports films, certainly other football movies. And that's the scene in the locker room uh, before the championship game for the Bulls. Yeah, it it really. I mean, you know, you talk about like forgetting how great the film is. This this was something I had not remembered at all. It had been about ten years uh, since I'd last seen it uh, before I wrote the piece, and 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 you know, I remember the carousing and the jokes and and all of that, but I I did not remember the locker room scene, which was really. It's it's very kind of moving and powerful. You, you see all these players just kind of doing whatever they have to do to get psyched up for the game, and in some cases, like you know, with John Matuzak and Bo Svensson, they're they're you know doing a kind of call and response thing to to, to get themselves psyched up. But then see other players who like, I mean, it's it's almost like the scenes we see in war movies as as you know like the soldiers are about to land at D-Day or whatever, like mm. there, you know, there's, there's a lot of fear there. There's a lot of worry. Like, am I going to be able to hold up my end of this? Am I going to, you know, a- am I going to let my, my teammates down? Am I going to, to be able to perform like I want to perform? And it's all done without any music at all on in the background. There's no kind of blood pumping anthemic, you know, we will rock you type of uh, soundtrack going. It's just you're just kind of hearing the murmurs and grunts in the locker room, and it's uh, it, it's it's quite uh, um, it's quite arresting. It's quite uh, you know I, I was about to say it's quite unforgettable, although I, you know clearly I had forgotten about <laughs> it. But but yeah, I, I, I you know it 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 seems just 
so much more natural than any scene like that I've seen in any other football movie. Would you say the movie, uh, being 40 years old now, holds up better than most sports movies made in that time period? Oh, absolutely. Although, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm biased towards sports films of the 70s, but I do think it, it, it holds up uh, you know, better than just about any football film I, you know, made, uh, made around then or you know, in several decades after, I think. You know, and I think there's a resonance there, too. Um, and you know, so, so much of it is, about, is based around the injuries that, that Nick Nolte is dealing with and you know, how much pain he's in every day and the, the drugs he has to take just to get through the day and to get through the game. And, you know, this is this is a theme that we are still, uh, you know, uh, talking about today with with players and, and especially with all the, the revelations about the you know, traumatic head injuries and and, uh, you know, and, and the way the length that the NFL has gone to try to cover that up and not take responsibility for the. You know, for the injuries that that you know continue to dog the players well after they've stopped playing, so I, I I think you know you watch this through through the lens of today, and and also with the you know issues about how the NFL has dealt with uh, players protesting, um, you know, uh, players like Colin Kaepernick, uh, how they've they've you know take, taking a knee on the field, and you know, and and you you see that the NFL has not really evolved. Uh, too much in the last 40 years. I mean, the, the, the teams and the league, uh, you know, circa 1979 would not have taken a much different attitude towards their players than, than the league and the teams do now. And, you know, it's a very, it's a very sad thing. And, and it's a very sobering thing to watch this film from 40 years ago and realize, you know, we haven't come very far. You make a great point. Why do you think it is that 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 league in particular has been so slow to evolve on so many issues? Well, you know, I think some of it comes down to the ownership, um, which I mean, like in any sport, it's it's a bunch of rich old white guys who are kind of <laughs> set in their ways about things. Uh, but but yeah, I mean, I don't. I think certainly the NBA, we we've seen a much more enlightened approach towards. Uh, uh, towards players speaking their minds about things, and uh, I, I also just think that you know maybe football is—it's you know out of all the sports, it, it is much more rooted in kind of a conservative mindset. And you know, I, I think uh, there's so much about you know you, you can go back to, to the college game and 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 the way that uh, coaches like. Bear Bryant and Bo Schembechler, just, you know, and Woody Hayes, it was all about like, you know, shut up and do your job and get out there and, you know, uh, you know, be, be one of the, uh, you know, the 11 guys on field and, and the, the 40 guys in, in the locker room and, you know, don't, don't make waves. So I think, I think perhaps just the culture in general is, is uh, calcified in a way that uh, um, it hasn't uh or hasn't always been with with other sports. Uh, moving away from North Dallas 40 for a moment, we uh, lost a great one today with the passing of Frank Robinson at the age of 83. And I feel like maybe the new generation doesn't know or appreciate Frank Robinson the way they should for everything he did for the game. On the field, one of the great talents of all time. And, and then what he did as a, a pioneering African-American manager, his work with the commissioner's office and every aspect of the game. 
I mean, it's it's really stunning the career he he had. I I I went back and looked looked at his bio today, and and you know, was reminded of all sorts of things I'd forgotten. Um, I mean, this 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 guy's a Hall of Famer, but it, it was so much more than that. He's, he remains the only player to have ever won an M- MVP award in both the American and National Leagues. Uh, he's, he was a Triple Crown winner in uh, 1966. He was the World Series MVP that year. He was a perennial all-star and uh, finished with 586 home runs, which uh, at the time, were, you know, there were very few, very few players who'd racked up over 500. Uh, but then in his, you know, uh, post-playing days, well, not, not even post-playing, I mean, he, he was when he became the player man, the manager of the Cleveland Indians in 1975, he was also still playing. Right. Uh, that, that he was the first African American MLB manager, and in his first game as manager for the Indians, he hits a home run. So this is you know this is a guy who had a flair for the uh, uh, for the big moment, but also just like a tough as nails player and competitor guy. You know. All, was not unusual for him to like crack ribs in the, in a game and then be back in the lineup the next day. Uh, and, and really just, um, you know, a, a player that, that, uh, uh, other players just look to, uh, as a leader and as a competitor and, and then, yeah, um, you know, he managed a bunch of teams. He, he worked for the commissioner's office. He, um, just, just was, always part of the game from, uh, you know, from the day he, he first set foot in the majors. And I, you know, I, I was a little too young to appreciate him in his prime. He was still playing with the Indians, uh, as, as player manager, um, when I became a fan, but, you know, but even then I, I understood that this was one of the greats and, um, you know, I, I hope people who aren't so familiar with his career or his accomplishments will go back and, and do a little research uh, about him. And I, I know they will come away impressed. Teams report for spring training pretty soon. Uh, are you still uh, are you still done with baseball, Dan? I am. I really uh, I mean, it pains me to say it. I, I feel almost like, you know, like a good friend of mine has died. But I feel like after after the commissioner's office uh, donated to uh, Cindy Hyde-Smith's campaign for senator in Mississippi, you know, a, a candidate who was who was not shy about the racist dog whistles. And then uh, here's the sport that, you know, places so much emphasis on the contributions that Jackie Robinson made, uh, you know, to, to go and, and back a racist candidate at the behest of, of Mitch McConnell. I, I just, you know, I understand when team owners do things like this, like the, uh, you know, the Ricketts family supporting Donald Trump. But I always can kind of in the past, I've kind of been able to put that aside and say, like, well, that's that's team owners who are historically, you know, uh, not great people. <laughs> but when the sport itself right. uh, gets behind uh, racist politicians, I just feel like I, I can't put money into this anymore. Um, luckily, I'm living in a city where uh there are lots of minor league uh teams there's there's a couple of uh college baseball programs so i'm going to get my baseball fixed in 2019 by uh going to college and minor league games but i i unsubscribed from mlb tv i uh stopped stopped following uh 
of MLB social media accounts. I'm just I'm just done. I respect you for that. I'm not strong enough yet, but I'm getting closer every day with Major League Baseball and with the NFL as well. That's why we can't have nice things, right, Dan? Exactly. <laughs> you know, and that's the thing. Like, like people say, like, oh, you're letting politics ruin your enjoyment of baseball. It's like, no, the baseball is still a fantastic sport, and and I'm still in love with it. I'm in love with the history, and you know, I've I've uh, got a. DVD box set of the 1979 World Series that that I've been itching to uh, to pull out again and, and look at and you know it, it I'll, I'll love baseball forever but I, I just cannot support the current product uh, with uh, uh, you know now that it's incre- I'm incre- it, they're increasingly demonstrating that it's all about the money and not about the game or the fans and um, you know and that just uh, I, I suppose I shouldn't be surprised, but I am disgusted. Dan Epstein. Hey, Dan, it is always great to talk to you. Thanks so much for being with us this afternoon, and we'll look forward to catching up with you again before too long. Oh, great! always great to talk to you, Rich. It's Dan Epstein looking back at North Dallas 40 here on Downtown the Podcast. Thanks to Dan. Thanks to the great Roseanne Cash as well for visiting with us. And thanks to you. Uh, spread the word. Tell your friends. Make sure they're subscribers as well. And join us next time. Downtown brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength.